Well, happy Easter to you all. I'm Tony. I'm one of the guys who helps lead this. If you love it, come and see me. If you're not so sure, uh, see John. But uh, happy Easter. It's great to be together, isn't it? The sun's out and we can go out. There's lots of hot crust buns, still a leftover that we can eat at the end. But um, I just And cake, apparently. But I just want to read a verse on the back of what Liz shared. Liz, I've heard Liz's story a number of times in different contexts. And every time it really grips me, I think, wow, what an amazing God that can come and, and restore someone who's just doing her own thing, leading her own life. And um, just as Liz was sharing it, there's a verse, it says this in Ecclesiastes, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. And I think that's what God does, you know, and as Liz was sharing her story, the restlessness that she described, but God had set eternity in her heart. And uh, I think around this room, there's probably people who may feel that same restlessness. There's something more. There's got to be something more. And uh, there's, a, there's an eternity that God has put in your heart. And that's why you're here this morning. And uh, I believe God may want to speak to you today. So anyway, obviously, we're going to be talking about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. What else would you be doing? Um, and so last, over the last week, last week, Dave spoke to us appropriately looking at Jesus' death on the cross, how distressing the event it was, um, how this was Jesus' perfect life. He became sin on our behalf. And God's love for us is so immense and immeasurable that the Son of God, Jesus, would do this for us and take our sin that we might know forgiveness. That's what he did on the cross. But the thing is, how do we know this is true? Because anyone could make such a claim, couldn't they? They could live a good life, pretty, you know, almost a perfect life, and go, I'm the Messiah. Well, in fact, that used to happen. There were people that come along making these claims, messianic claims. And uh, what always happened is the same sort of pattern. They would, get, they would be killed, they would die, the crowds would go back to their life, knowing this isn't really the person who they said they were. So what is different about Jesus? What is the real difference that Jesus uh, makes? So let's look at the the Bible, because that's where we're going to get all of our information and real truth has to come from there. So Mark 16. So as, as you, if you come every week, you would know we're going through the book of Mark over the last number of weeks. And this is the final week in the series all about the resurrection. And it says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James in Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Um, I've never seen an angel. There might be someone in this room who has, but I never have. And I guess I would have a similar response to, to, to Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. It must have been frightening, terrifying, astonished. I would have been struck, dumb and quiet. I'm sure we all would have done that. It wouldn't happen too often, I reckon, but uh, that's what would have happened to me. And uh, it's, this is the defining moment in history. 
The Old Testament points to this moment. Through the book of Mark, chapters 8, 9 and 10, there's, there's moments where Jesus sort of sits the disciples down and he says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. The authorities are going to come and take me. And in three days' time, I'm going to be raised from the grave. He was very explicit. He didn't just mince his words. He told them really straight and direct. And Mark, that's what Mark does. He's, he's pointing these out. Mark's really direct. And if, if in the book of Mark it says something on a number of occasions, this is serious, we're to take it seriously. So in Mark chapter 9, just one of those three times when Jesus said it, it's recorded. It says this in Mark 9, 30 to 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man, as Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask. And, you know, you put yourself in the place of the disciples. I guess it would be a tricky one to ask. You're coming back, you're going to die and you're going to come back alive. That's never happened before. It's never, you know, they, when you're dead, you're dead. They didn't ask. But Jesus gave details. This is what's going to happen. Now, reading it after, you know, we're reading it now after the event, right? And you can read it and think, how did they not quite understand it? But it was something so, so, so different. This had never happened before. No one had ever come back from the dead. And there's a significance in the fact that Mark informs us that it's to these women he appears first. And they play a significant role. Firstly, this is how it happened. This is a fact. This is, they were there first. And so he writes this. And basically he's saying, go and check it out. He's writing this down because these women, you could go back and ask, did this really happen? To anyone who wanted to challenge this and question, did this really happen? Well, go and see Mary Magdalene. Go and see, go and see Mary, his mum. Go and see Peter, the disciple. So they were there. They were the first on scene. Even more important, though, is the fact that women's testimony was not really valued in those days. It was like, well, it, it doesn't really count for much. So even if you was going to, say, make a bit of a story up, you, didn't, you definitely wouldn't be writing the story and going, I know what I'll do. I'll put a couple of women right at the forefront, right as the, the chief, the chief uh, witnesses to this whole event, because it wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't have women as your main witnesses in those days. Thankfully, we've moved on a little from there. However, Mary and Magdalene were first on the scene and they went to the scene, they went to the tomb to see a dead Jesus. That was their expectation, nothing else. They'd risen early on that morning, we're going to see Jesus. And you know, put yourself in their position. They would have been full of sadness, full of disappointment, coming to see Jesus and do what you do when you're mourning. They went to see him and they took expensive spices to to look after the body and the main reason really was because it was April that sort of time it was springtime in the Middle East and it is very warm and so they're taking the spices really to look after a decaying body that's what they were going there for so this is Mary Jesus mother and Mary Magdalene a close friend they would have been experiencing pain and sadness massive disappointment and they discussed and I think it's quite apt that a few women on a road discussed the practicalities of what needs to happen how are we going to move the stone and the stone would have weighed somewhere between one and two ton which is a lot for a few people to move and apparently the stone when it's put in position is is on a slight incline 
So when you roll the stone in place, it's a whole lot easier than removing it. That's just a little aside for you to take away. You might, you know, over lunch. Is that really true? Anyway, you find out yourself. It's definitely true. So it's easier to close it than to open it. And loss and bereavement, you know, is, prompts us to do actions that are not always necessarily fully thought through. And I don't know, you may have been in those situations. And you just do, you've got to do something. And this is what these women did. We've got to go and do something. We're paying our respects. We're doing something. We're going to look after this dead body. It's an act of service. It's an act of kindness towards to, to the one they loved. But so much more was just about to happen. Verse 5 and 6 says, As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. Now, this was an angel. In other accounts in the Gospels, you'll see clearly that this was an angel sitting at the right-hand side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus is not where they supposed him to be. No wonder they were startled. No wonder they were trembling in astonishment, almost rooted to the floor. This doesn't happen, does it? No one comes back from the dead. When you die, you stay that way. That's all of our experiences of anyone we've ever known. No one comes back to life. Everything, and that means everything about the Christian faith, stands or falls on this very one issue of the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, end of the story. So this is not just a nice ending to a nice, uh, nicely shaped religion or a religious story. It's so much more than this. It's not just a hunch. It's not just, a, well, it fit a nice plan. It's a nice little ending to a load of other books in the Bible. We'll put this in. It's not that at all. So if you're here and you don't know if this is true or not, take time to consider it and really look into the resurrection because if this is true, it's all true. And if you do believe this, I would say take time regularly. Now, it's Easter Sunday, of course. We're celebrating Jesus is risen. What a, great, what a great moment. But as Christians, we should regularly, always be regularly focusing on and dwelling on the amazing event of the resurrection. As we will see, there are unparalleled implications to what Jesus did. Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19. He says this, I need my glasses for this bit. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And uh, that's really an interesting point. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave then we're pretty much just wasting our time because everything hinges on this. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then all the things that we've sung about this morning and that we learned last week or we heard last week about our sin being forgiven is just not really true if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And so it's a really key thing. And it's also in those verses, it was talking about if there is no resurrection, then really there is no 
sense of being with him forever. So the key things about the Christian faith, that our sins are forgiven when we come to him and ask for forgiveness, that he's with us, and that we, there's a, there's, we will go to heaven, we'll be with God forever. They're simply not true if there's no resurrection, which is a bit of a challenge if there is no resurrection. I'm glad that it's not true. I'm glad that there is a resurrection. I'm glad Jesus did come back to life. It says in that verse as well, we are of all people to be most pitied. And I think that's really, really true. Because if it's true, it's all true. And if it's false, it's all false. I remember not long after I became a Christian, this other guy who was also a Christian, we was talking and he said to me, you know, even if it's not true, it's a good way to live, isn't it? And, and at the time, I, you know, I didn't really think about it too much in those days, to be honest. But, but it's just rubbish, isn't it? Because if it's not true, like let's, let's fold up these chairs that take a while to put out now. You have to do them individually. Let's go and do something completely different. Let's watch football. Let's go and do something far, far different than just sat in this room singing about stuff that's not even true. Because, yeah, of course... You know, it's good to live a good life, etc., etc. But you might as well be God of your own life, mightn't you? You might as well do what you please, what pleases you. Maybe you'll be very a nice person and, and be friendly to other people, etc., etc. But there is really no point coming here on a Sunday morning if this is not true. So that's why Paul writes, we're to be pitied more than anyone because we're wasting our time every Sunday for an hour and a half, two and a half hours if you're on a team. You're wasting your time thinking about you know, one day it's all going to be perfect and lovely because it's just not true. So it's really important to consider the resurrection. Many people, they don't believe this. Dead people don't come back to life, do they? That's, you know, that would be a fairly standard comment. If you're a Christian, this is the basis for your faith. This is what brings us confidence. This is where our confidence is. And if you're not a Christian today, Keep exploring. Come and find out what this Jesus has accomplished. What about the resurrection? Could this really have happened? Well, let's look at the alternatives. Mark's account is pretty clear that Jesus rose from the dead. And apart from the fact that no one else raises from the grave, the authorities and religious leaders and for 2,000 years since, the secular world has sought to find some solution to the resurrection, to the risen Jesus. And there are four dominant theories that people have come up with clever people seemingly the first one is they went the the women went to the wrong tomb they were so distraught in their grief and that is totally understandable isn't it to say that they would have been full of grief they showed up at the wrong tomb and we've all got lost before anyone here never got lost no we've all got lost I mean I've even been in a car with Jenny and she's got the sat nav going we've got the the google maps on your phone And she said, we're on the wrong road. They've moved the roads. (laughs) Well, we'll leave that one right there. We've all got lost before in the, you know, but went to the wrong tomb. They could have gone to the man who owned the tomb. We seem to have got a little bit lost because there was someone who owned that tomb, a rich man who, who, who said, Jesus, this is where we need to put his body. They could have gone to him and found out. As Christianity spread... It would have been very easy for the authorities to present the body, saying, you just went to the wrong tomb. Christianity is spreading. How can we bring this to an end where we can present the body of Jesus? It ends the whole thing about the resurrection. They were desperate to end this. 
So it seems unlikely that the women went to the wrong tomb. The next one is hallucination. All these followers of Jesus were hallucinating. Most of us have been around, a lot of us anyway would have been around traumatic loss at some point in our lives. And we can, you know, we sleep badly and stuff can happen in our lives and think things that haven't quite happened in the middle of a dream or something like that. But hallucination of over 500 people over a period of six weeks is not the way it happens. Hallucination, not that I'm a medical person, but it's pretty clear that hallucinations might be a person here and a different person over there. But for this whole time, and then it suddenly stopped. So hallucination seems highly unlikely. Jesus walked with them. He ate with them. He cooked them breakfast. He said to Thomas, who was doubting, well, that's where he comes from, obviously, you know that. But he said, look, see my hands. See the, the, the wound in the side. Jesus had been around these people. Clearly, hallucination would not have really been a possible um, option to the resurrection. And the third one is the swoon theory, which you may, I quite like the idea of it. It's sort of, uh, it's, it's rubbish, really. I'm going to just explain why it's rubbish. But uh, it's, it's the most interesting one to me. It's interesting, but not plausible. And it goes like this. Jesus, having been beaten and whipped and a crown of thorns shoved onto his onto his head, um, his back ripped apart. And last week, Dave described it a little bit, what the, what the um, uh, crucifixion death was like. Jesus had all this. And then the Roman guards mistakenly thought, oh, he's not quite dead. Well, no, they thought he was dead, but maybe he wasn't quite really. We'll just cart him off and put him in a, in a, in a tomb whilst he was still alive. And then Jesus, having suffered all that, he's lying on the tomb and with a little bit of R&R, &R, a bit of rest and recuperation over a couple of days or so, he suddenly feels a lot better. And he's now going to remove a, two, a one to two tonne stone across from the doorway. Um, and then, just so you know, there's a Roman guard, who are pretty fearless sort of guys, who are standing there waiting on guard that no one comes to steal the body. And Jesus somehow, in this state, has sneaked past them to prove that, you know, it's just... He's just swooned. It doesn't really seem possible. The Roman soldiers knew how to execute people. They did it all the time. A spear was put into his side and blood and water came out, indicating a ruptured heart. Jesus clearly died. It was a hundred pounds worth of linen and ointment covering his body. It's just not feasible. Historians... Secular historians would not see this as a possibility. And the last one is the body was stolen. The disciples stole the body and they made up the story and to further this thing about Jesus. But even that just seems far-fetched really, doesn't it? Because here was the disciples and his followers who'd all gone back to their own way, back to fishing and other trades. They were a forlorn, dejected, beaten group of people. Jesus had died. Why would they come and steal the body and then their lives are totally transformed? And furthermore, then die for the cause. Doesn't really seem to make sense, does it? They were flawed people like you and I. But it was said of them they turned the world upside down for this, very, for this Jesus. You wouldn't do that if you're just covering up a little scam going on here. And then and many of them died for the cause. Even Mark, who wrote this account, he died um, by being dragged by horses through a city. Nice. We won't go into too much detail about that. And nearly, nearly all of the 
the disciples died a horrific death. Peter died upside down on a cross. John, he didn't die, but he, they tried to kill him by putting him in a, an, a vat of boiling oil. So they knew what they were doing, the Romans, when they wanted to do some damage to you. So, and then they might say the authorities stole the body. But this seems unlikely because this Jesus movement was really gathering pace. And they knew it was all about the resurrection. It's all about this Jesus, him being resurrected. And so even in their mistakes they made, they could have said, here's the body. But they never did. The resurrection is an event that changed the world. It's stunning to remind you of Jesus' death. Reminds us, reveals the depth of love he has for you and he has for me. God doesn't brush injustice under the carpet. You know, he died because there's, there's stuff that we've done wrong. He loves us. He's a just God, but he died on our behalf. We've all messed up. And Liz mentioned sometimes she can feel like I was like Peter. I made these sort of mistakes. The reality is we're all like Peter and the rest of those disciples. They're very much like you and I. And God wants to restore us in relationship the way he did to Peter. And it's accomplished through his death. But without the resurrection, the life and death of Jesus, though noble and admirable, is nothing other than a tragic event. Because if Jesus is still in the ground, then sin and death reign. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, this is the proof. This is the conclusive proof that Jesus, the Son of God, defeated sin and death. What a triumph. So this means that today, if you're a Christian, you can dwell with Christ and there's a security. It's not dependent upon how well you're doing, how you're performing. It's all because of his death and his resurrection. And there's an invitation for anyone who here say, well, I don't really know. I'm not really quite on that page yet. To commune and to know God, to abide with him, to dwell with God. Jesus is not in the ground. So that means your debt, my debt, is paid in full. And I think at one point I said, change the world. Well, this is a big statement. Let's look at the effect it had on Peter. It says in verse 7, it said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. So Peter was singled out by the angel who's bringing this message from God. Peter by name. And he could, you know, God could have said a lot of different things, couldn't he, to Peter. Why is it always you who messes up? Why are you the one who always blows it big time? Peter is the guy who I would say, and I can relate to this, who overpromises but underperforms, you know. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else is like that, but, you know, it's quite good having Peter in the Bible. It can give you a lot of comfort, a lot of reassurance. Well, if it was like it for him, well, I'm okay then. But Jesus didn't call him out and say, what is wrong with you? Get a grip. I've told you so many times. You know, a bit in, in the book of John, it, it, Jesus comes to him at a later point and he, and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And he says, on you I will build my church. You're going to play a key role. Here's Peter, a, you know, a bit of a failure, failure really, a, one who messes up all the time, doesn't deliver when he says he will. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a key role in the church, leading this church. And Peter goes away and, uh, you know, he encounters the Holy Spirit and then he preaches powerfully and thousands get saved. What a turnaround from someone, this Peter, who, who was the one who, when the cock crowed, had denied Jesus three times. And Liz mentioned it in her story. And I guess we can all relate to that at some point in our lives. So he explicitly said he was to die and be raised again. And Peter just did not get it, did he at all? 
Peter is broken and ashamed, devastated. But Jesus, the most important thing, he restores Peter. Later on, he says, do you love me? I've said that. But he, he, just make, he, he puts this so that all the past is dealt with. And whatever your past is, his death means you can be forgiven. And the resurrection means you know that you're forgiven. Because Jesus has been raised to a new life, you can have your sin forgiven and you can be raised to new life. It's a certainty. And this is the stunning, wonderful, brilliant nature of the gospel. Complete restoration. Not, yeah, come in at the back row, you know, you're rubbish. God's not like that to us. Complete forgiveness, fullness of life, full restoration. It's not a promise of an easy life, but it is certainly a promise of a transformed life and one where he will be with us. Peter, after Jesus had restored him and ascended to heaven, preached to the thousands with power, with authority, with boldness, without fear, and thousands come to know him. You know, there's around 2 billion people across the world today who would say, I believe in this Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. It's not just a little crowd here and a little crowd somewhere else. There's many, many millions of people, billion, 2 billion, saved. And there was a little article yesterday on the news, uh, Jeremy Hunt, a politician, in case you didn't know. <laughs> he said this, 245 million Christians are being persecuted today. And uh, it, which makes me want to pray for people around the globe because you just get caught up in your own little world. But God has transformed lives to the point where people are saying, I'm going to follow him because he's done something deep within my life that I'm prepared to take on whatever God gives me because he is worth it. He, what he's done is so worth it. And this is the gospel today. He knows you and calls you by name in the same way that Peter was called by name. And God's a specialist in failures people who mess up. And I don't know about you, but I know that is me at times, loads of times, right? We've all done it. We've all fallen short of God's standard. It's a work of his grace, of his kindness, his love towards you. And when Peter denied Jesus on those occasions and in the cock crowed, and he was like totally devastated, broken man, his relationship with Jesus was completely fractured and ruined. And he couldn't do anything about it. Beyond repair. And this is what it says in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. So Peter, who in the book of Mark, chapter 16, he's going to tell the disciples and Peter. Peter does become this person who leads the charge for the church after Jesus has ascended to be with the right hand of the Father. And he goes on to write some of the Bible, which is amazing. And he writes this in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Born again, a living hope, heart transformation, a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. When this takes place, you know. When they shared her story, there was that moment, I felt the joy. I felt this, there's an expression, something changes. Because it, it has to, doesn't it? If you're born again, there's a change right within. Your heart is totally transformed. And if you're a Christian here today, and the only times you can think about it is way, way back, we need to come again to this resurrection story. Say, God, renew me again. Renew me, fill me with your spirit again. 
a living hope. He's changed us. Whatever is going on, you know, for those 245 million Christians around the world who face difficulty and persecution, they still have a living hope. If they're being persecuted even to death, they have a living hope. Our past has been dealt with. Our sin has been forgiven. Our present, well, God is with us by the Holy Spirit. And our future eternally is secure, totally secure. Whatever you do today, whatever you do tomorrow, our future is absolutely certain. If Jesus is resurrected, then if you're a Christian, so will you be. And that's great news. One of the things, uh, as you get older, and I guess some heading that way more and more, obviously we all are, I suppose, aren't we? But anyway, I'm in front of most of you. One of the things is things spoil. Like, you know, you look in the mirror less when you get older. <laughs> well, I do anyway. It's, not, it's better to look at photos of 20 years ago. But anyway, as you get older, things spoil. They change, don't they? And Peter, though, he wrote about something really different. Will not perish, will not spoil, will not fade. Our health will fade. There's no question about that. Money, well, it will go in the end. You can't take it with you. Security, all those things can be taken away in a moment. And even that little five minutes of fame that some of you might have had on YouTube somewhere at some point is going to be irrelevant someday in your life. The contrast between a life of faith and one of no faith is stark. It's so vastly wide, to say the least. And this uh, philosopher called Bertrand Russell wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. I don't think I'd recommend it, but anyway, he said, in this he said this, as he neared death, he said, darkness that I've always feared is finally overtaking me. And that's one extreme for someone who never knew Jesus. And yet, I've sat with a number of people um, in recent years, who Christians who are in the last hours of living on this, living this life, and every single one of them, it was like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to go home because there's a certainty. This is not like, oh, let's hope for the best. You know, I've lived this life. I hope it all works. I've, I've watched them. And what a joy because the Bible says the sting of death is gone and all that. Jesus comes, his resurrection is true, and these people, as I've watched them die, they knew what they was going to. The pain and all that suffering was going. And that's the vast difference. I'm ready. That's the assurance of the resurrection. The resurrection tells me Jesus is who he says he is. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something where it gives us something to do on a Sunday morning. This is the truth. And if this is true, it changes everything, as someone prayed at some point earlier in our meeting. And faith in Jesus has a starting point, a focal point, a, a significant part. And that is the resurrection, his death and his resurrection. It gives me a certainty about eternity, which I'm so, I just love that. He died, he rose from the grave, and he's coming again. This is the truth of the Bible. This is the truth of the gospel. It's either true and it's all true about the resurrection or it's false and it's all false. This is the stunning significance of the resurrection. And I look around and I know most people in this room, but the thing is, God knows every one of us and he knows every part of your story, the good, the not so good, the stuff that we don't want anyone else to know, he knows. 
and yet he still loves you. Maybe you've been coming here for a while, but you've never really known this to be true for you. You've never really made this your own. You've come along with someone else and it's just, yeah, well, I'm sort of in. That's not enough. If you know this to be true, you're born again to a living hope. Celebrate the resurrection daily. Never let this grow tired. Never let this grow dim. Celebrate every day. Jesus is alive. We're going to do it more on a day like today. Of course we are. We're going to celebrate. And, uh, but every day, that's what we should do. Let this captivate you afresh. If you feel like you've been going through the motions a little bit, well, get back, go home today, read the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Let it stir your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to come. And if you feel like it's not really happening for me, the Holy Spirit will come and ignite these words from the Bible to give you a passion afresh.